Some of our folks are over at Bob Jones University this evening for the Bible conference, and we miss them, but we are glad you are here and looking forward to this time in God's Word and then opportunity to pray with one another. Before we look to Scripture tonight, I want to bring before you a couple of slides. Our folks in the AV room will bring this up. This coming Lord's Day will be the first time that our new Sunday school class, the Word of Life class, will be open, so to speak, to guests. Our folks in that class have been meeting the last two weeks to pray and be prepared. And uh, so we want to encourage you about this class. This uh, certainly is for the folks who have been involved in our neighborhood Bible class over the last many years. This is kind of a 2.0, if you will. But we certainly want um, to encourage all of you to invite your friends, neighbors, co-workers as well. And uh, pointing you here to YouTube. Did you know that we have a YouTube channel? We don't use it that often, uh, but this is a screenshot from that uh, this afternoon. And if you look in the bottom left corner, there is a little thumbnail of a video that our teacher John Crocker has created. It's about two minutes of an introduction to an invitation to the class. I don't know uh, if there are 6,104 other Mount Calvary Baptist churches on YouTube. But we're 6105, evidently. Uh, If you go to YouTube and search for Mount Calvary Baptist Church, Greenville, South Carolina, I think you'll find it. But that is the actual, I don't know what they call that, handle maybe. And uh, would welcome you to share. I tried that just about an hour ago. I tried texting this video to somebody, and I think it worked. So... Uh, That is one thing to point out, and then if they'll move to the next slide, we have a web page on our site. Uh, If you go under ministries and then Sunday school for the Word of Life class, and this has that same video embedded with a little bit of an information as well, and so you can find, uh, find a way to point people to the class that way as well. We do hope, Lord willing, uh, in the next week or so to have some flyers as well that you can give to folks. And uh, we are excited about this opportunity ahead of us. That's regular Sunday school time, 9.15, starting this coming Lord's Day. Thank you very much. You may take that down. I do want to encourage us as well to keep working on Galatians 5. Uh, For purposes of time, we won't review that together this evening, but um, do want to keep that in front of us to walk by the Spirit and not fulfill the desire of the flesh. It's a daily battle, and it's a battle well worth fighting, and memorizing these verses will help us in that battle. Well, there is a a holiday on the calendar for February 14th, and I don't know what your feelings are about that, 
but I want to set you at ease regardless of those feelings. I'm not prepared to preach a Valentine's Day sermon. But I do believe the Lord would have us use the occasion to think about the love of God for sinners. And in conjunction with the start of this new Sunday school class, uh, I've been burdened over the last few weeks, at least a couple of weeks, with a passage of Scripture that I believe the Lord would have us consider together tonight. And we're going to do so through the lens, through the prism of a promise. And so we're going to turn, first of all, to that promise and then to our main text. The promise is in John 6, if you turn there first. This is a familiar verse, and it is a wonderful promise. You talk about precious and magnificent promises. I don't think we would want to try to rank them, but you'd be hard-pressed to find a more precious one than this. I'm referring to John six thirty-seven, the words of our Lord, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. All the people that the Father has given to the Son will come to the Son. And to every one of them who does, and and all of them will, He will certainly not cast out. There is no possibility of that. What a wonderful promise. And the very fact that we're sitting here, most all of us professing believers, the very fact that we're sitting here and that we know the Lord Jesus Christ is a fulfillment of this promise. That those whom the Father has given to the Son come And that when they come, He has not cast us out. And that's the lens through which we want to look at one of our Lord's parables. And so, if you turn now back to the book of Matthew in chapter 22. The first 14 verses of Matthew 22 are one of our Lord's parables. It's actually the third in a set of three, the previous two being in the second part of chapter 21. This parable gives us the truth about a king, a king who issues a call, and particularly about the responses to that call. The audience who originally heard Jesus' teaching that Matthew faithfully records perfectly by inspiration of the Spirit consisted primarily of Jews and especially of Jewish leaders. These were leaders who at this point very clearly were threatening our Lord. 
And in the previous chapter, we're told, if you'll look at verse 42, Jesus said to them, did you never read in the Scriptures? And then He cites Psalm 118, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Have you never read this? Of course they had. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people, producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. And though the Lord had been speaking in parables, these people very evidently understood the message that was being conveyed. For verse 45 relates, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. And they wanted to seize him, but they also feared the people. And so, these were the builders who had rejected the stone, the stone that was becoming the chief cornerstone. And so, at the end of the parable that we'll consider briefly this evening, we see verse 15 of chapter 22 now, that the Pharisees went and plotted together how they might trap him in what he said. And then the context succeeding our passage tonight relates several instances of various people and groups trying to trap the Lord in his teaching. So this parable very clearly speaks of the Jews and of their rejection of the Messiah. And we would misunderstand it if we did not bring that context front and center as we looked at the Lord's teaching this evening. But this parable also teaches us much about God's calls to sinners generally and about the responses of sinners to those calls. In fact, I did not plan this, but took it as the Lord's clear providence. I was reading a book really fairly unrelated to this theme yesterday morning, and the author, uh, writing in the probably the 1670s or early 1680s, was speaking of responding to God's Word, hearing God's Word and responding to it. And he said this, it will be with you, he's speaking to fellow Englishmen, it will be with you in this nation and this place as with the Jews. He will take Christ and the gospel from you and give it to the Americans. That was striking. This pastor foresaw that the Lord was going to take the gospel from his countrymen and give it to the Americans. Well, what would this parable teach us about 
a king who issues an invitation and about the responses to that invitation and how that might help our understanding of our responsibility today. Let's read it. Matthew 22, starting in verse 1. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. Again, he sent out other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited, Behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fattened livestock are all butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went their way, one to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. But the king was enraged, and he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. Then he said to his slaves, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main highways, and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good, and the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. But when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called but few are chosen. We don't want or need to strain at the symbolic meaning of every detail of this parable. But there are brilliant threads in this story that we find woven into the fabric of many other passages of Scripture. And we're going to look at five of those this evening. The first one is this, that there is a king who has prepared a wedding feast. There's a king who has prepared a wedding feast. It is a grand feast. It is a bountiful feast. This parable, Jesus tells us, concerns the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. And it may be compared to a wedding feast. There's a comparison here in the form of a parable. There are lessons to be learned. What are those lessons? Well, those lessons start with the king and with his feast. The king, of course, is God the Father. And he gives a wedding feast. That that word gives is is the word makes. He, He creates. He plans. He develops. He arranges. He funds a feast. It's all of his doing. It's his initiation. He makes all the arrangements. 
And we see in verse 4, he says, I have prepared my dinner. It's his dinner for his son. That's the language in verse 2. It is a wedding feast for his son. Quite a few of you in this room have married off a son or a daughter or maybe several. You know what it's like to prepare a reception. And the reception, in, in one sense, is, is for all of these people. You've invited a lot of people. You've prepared a lot of food. You've tried to, to match the number of people that say they're coming with the amount of food that has been prepared. But in another sense, that feast, that reception is, is for the bride and groom. They, they are the guests of honor. This feast is ultimately for the Son. And it is an extravagant feast. He says, I've prepared my dinner, verse 4, my oxen and my fattened livestock are all butchered and everything is ready. This language indicates that, that this, is, this is not merely finger food that we're talking about here. Now, now please don't be offended. If, if, if your specialty is finger food, when my children get married, my specialty might be finger food. It certainly won't be oxen and fattened livestock. All right, but, but, but this is an extravagant feast. The preparations have been in the works for months, and now everything is ready. It, it is becoming, I think, somewhat customary for engaged couples to send out a save the date even before they send out the invitations. They want to make sure that that date is, is on your calendar even before the official invitations go out six or eight weeks, whatever the proper time is ahead of time. Okay, there, there has been... There's been forewarning, there's been invitation, there's been indications sent out. The prince, the crown prince, the son of the king is going to be married. There's going to be a feast, and you're invited. Now, some of you may, may really delight when you receive an envelope in the mail and you open it up and there's an invitation. Like you put it on your calendar right away, you wouldn't miss it for anything. Others of you are in other categories, perhaps. But, but we shouldn't think of this merely in our 21st century American context, as in, yeah, sure, you're going to get some invitations to weddings. This is a first century context, and this is not just anyone's wedding. This is the prince's wedding. This is a matter of state. I think we could infer that this is an obligation. It's not just free food. It's, it's, it's not just, well, can you work it in your schedule? The king's son is being married, and you need to come. That's the kind of invitation this is. It held tremendous significance in the ancient world when the crown prince was going to be married. This was a significant step toward his succession 
as the heir to the throne. There couldn't be a grander, more important occasion. And when we think of the breadth of Scripture and what it says about what God the Father has provided for sinners to the glory of His Son, and we think about this wedding feast, we know that there are dimensions that, that this parable is, isn't intended to convey, but that are, are more glorious than we could have ever dreamed on our own. Because, because this son isn't just the honored prince, the groom. He actually gave his life to purchase life for those invited guests. We sang about this this past Lord's Day. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ her Lord. She is His new creation by water and the Word. From heaven He came and sought her to be His holy bride. And with His blood He bought her, and for her life He died. That's the Prince. That's what we're being invited to. The king is putting on an amazing wedding feast. There's a second thread. It is, as we've already indicated, that there are royal invitations sent out. Royal invitations. There's wording here that we need to notice. If you'll look at verse 3, the king sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast. The word translated there, invited, is the same word as call. To call those who had been called. There's clearly an emphasis here on this calling that sets up the passage for the most significant verse, which is the last verse. Many are called. Many are issued this invitation, this royal call to come to the wedding feast. This, of course, is an invitation not just to church. We, we, we looked at an invitation to this new Sunday school class. This isn't just an invitation to to church or to an occasion or to an event or something that is temporal. This, of course, is an invitation to the kingdom of God through Jesus Christ. And we see in verse 3 that it is refused. They were unwilling to come. The form of, of that phrase, they were unwilling, is, is ongoing. There, there seems to have been a persistence, a repeated unwillingness, lack of desire to come. It wasn't just that they, they missed the email and it went to their junk folder. They deemed it undesirable. These were religious people. These were people that you would expect to be on the invitation, the guest list. 
These were people who should have understood that it was their duty and privilege to come to this wedding feast. But they didn't want to. They were unwilling to come. And what's remarkable, in addition to that, is that verse 4 tells us, again, he sent out other slaves. The king, God the Father, sends out more servants, more messengers. He doesn't stop sending invitations. Not even to these people who have said no and been unwilling to this point. There's going to come a point of no return for them. This passage will speak of that. But, but the Lord doesn't just send out one invitation. They're repeated. And He sends them out through slaves. It's noteworthy that the king sends out messengers on his behalf. They're heralds. They're emissaries. They're ambassadors. They're carrying the invitation, the message of the king. So, we know from Scripture that what this parable pictures is what we find throughout our Bible, and that is that God is, is calling. He's sending out invitations. He's saying, come. How will we respond? How will those around us respond? There's a third thread. We've already seen it to some degree in verse 3, but it's picked up and really magnified in verses 5 through 7, and, and that is a set of responses. We'll call them culpable responses. Blameworthy responses. Verse 5 says, they, they paid no attention. They were, they were careless. They neglected. They paid no attention. Why? Well, evidently part of their reasoning was that they were going to go on their way and give their attention to other things, to lawful things, things such as tending to their farm or taking care of business. They were preoccupied. This is seed that is being choked out by the cares of this world. They didn't care about the invitation because they thought there were more important things and they could put it off. And actually, it says the rest, in verse 6, the rest seized the king's slaves and mistreated them and killed them. We know this happened throughout Israel's history to certain people of God, men of God, prophets. This would happen to John the Baptist, of course, has happened. It, it will happen to our Lord. It's a violently rebellious response. There is something in the sinful human heart that doesn't stop simply at taking a pass at the call of God to bend the knee and own His Son as Lord, but it actually rises up in rebellion and says, no. 
I will not come. In fact, I'm going to get rid of the messengers who brought this message. They will not return. That's what's bound up in the human heart. God has created an extravagant feast. He sent out invitations. And the people of Israel and many religious people since then have responded in this way. Whether or not they've killed anyone, there has been this murderous, bent-in hearts, this enmity. The New Testament refers to it. And it is punishable. This is one of the sobering aspects of this parable. It is, it is punishable. The king, verse 7, was enraged and he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. The king was not, he could not be indifferent, apathetic, ambivalent about these invited guests' response. He responds righteously. It is his kingdom with, with fatal judgment. It makes us think of verses like Hebrews 9.27. It is appointed unto men once to die, and after that, judgment. In Acts 17.31, when Paul spoke to those very earthly, powerful people and said, God has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man who He has appointed having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. You see, the matter of this invitation to this wedding feast is life or death. And a response not to come is punishable with eternal damnation. There isn't some sort of via media. There's no third way here. Either you come, and you come the right way, or it means eternal death. But we see a fourth thread, a fourth brilliant strand in this parable, and that is in verses 8 and 9. We'll call it the king's extensive generosity. His generosity just, it, it expands. To remarkable dimensions. The invitees who presumed they were deserving but were unwilling to come actually were not worthy after all. And we might say, well, well, all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. None of us are worthy. Yes, absolutely. So what is this referring to? Well, it's referring to the fact that, no, they weren't worthy in and of themselves because of their sin, and they weren't worthy because they weren't willing to reject that sin and come to the feast. And so the king sends out his slaves, his ambassadors, his messengers, and says, go to where the crowds are. Go to where the people are. Go find them on the corners. Go find them on those intersections headed out of town where lots of people collect.
And so this appeal goes out and it draws in those who both on one hand, some are noticeably evil and others who are comparatively good. In other words, the people who eventually do come to the wedding feast due to this expansive, generous invitation, they do so irrespective of their apparent moral condition. They don't come based on whether they deserve to come. None of them deserve to come. I I doubt very many people in this room went to highways and byways and issued invitations to the wedding and wedding reception of your children. I'm not suggesting that that would be appropriate. But it is, it is hard for us as human beings, even when it's revealed to us, to really grasp the grace of God to undeserving sinners like ourselves. And so this, this generous, this expansive invitation issues forth in a final thread, and that is an outcome. There's a revealed outcome. And we see it starting in verse 10, that the slaves, they go out, they find these people, and here's the last clause there in that verse, the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. That's noteworthy. The wedding hall ends up being filled. The invitations went out. They kept going out until the hall was filled. It will be filled. All whom the Father has given to me will come. And when they come, I will in no wise, I will certainly not cast them out. There is a very significant caveat here. It is, of course, that there is an example of a man who comes without the right clothes. He doesn't clean his clothes. He he doesn't come in the appropriate attire. There are some who don't come because they refuse the invitation and have other preoccupations. There are some who come, but they tumble over the wall as they please like formalist and hypocrisy that we read about recently. They think there's a back door. They come on their own terms. And of course, they will suffer the same fate. The Lord did not know Him. And so when we think about this invitation, we have to, we have to come to grips with the fact that there is only one way to answer this invitation and come to the wedding feast legitimately. It's to come through the Son. It's to come through the gate. It's to be known by Him. It's to have His robes of righteousness. It's to be repentant for the kingdom of heaven is at hand and to show that in our lives. There is only one way. And so there are many called, many, many invited By comparison, few chosen. But it would be right for us to be renewed in our minds about how this book, the book of Matthew, ends. 
when the Lord says to the disciples, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So go. Going, make disciples of all the nations. All authority has been given to this son, this crown prince, in heaven and on earth. Does that include the United States of America? Does that include Greenville? Does that include the west side? Does that include your street, your neighborhood, your subdivision? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to the Son. Our mission as a local church is to take the word to the world to make true disciples of Jesus Christ. And we have the privilege of sending out missionaries to the uttermost parts of the earth. We have missionaries that literally are halfway across the world. But like the early church, we also have a Jerusalem. Now, none of us can be involved in this commission in every way, or even in most ways. But we must all be involved. This isn't a matter of pressure, either on us, or certainly on those whom we're trying to reach. We don't coerce people. God has to draw them. But He does send servants to make the house calls. He does send servants with the invitation. So whether it is our interaction with each other as we gather week by week and as we communicate with one another throughout the week, or as we attempt by God's grace to rear our children, as we interact with guests who may come into our services, as we pray for and financially support our missionaries, or as we witness at work and in the community, our mission as Mount Calvary Baptist Church is to take the word to the world to make true disciples of Jesus Christ. I want to encourage us as we pray tonight, in addition to the many important requests that are on our sheets and that are in your hearts, to pray not not only for this new class. It's just one aspect of our ministry. It happens to be new. It happens to be focused on this. It's just one aspect of our ministry, our mission. But that, but that each of our groups would take it as from the Lord to pray for our mission and for our involvement in that mission. And that we would make much of this King and His Son and His Feast And his promise that all that he has given to his son will come, and that when they do, they will in no wise be cast out.
We need to take him at his word for those around us as we have taken him at his word for our own eternal souls. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we are sobered that there are many, many who are called and who, like we did for stretches of time, prioritize other things, have have no desire, willfully rebel. But we believe, O Lord, that You have a people for Your Son, and we believe that Your Gospel is the power to save them. And we ask that we would, in our own homes, among those who attend this assembly, and among those who invite, we pray that you would call sinners to yourself in repentance and faith. And we thank you for what you'll do as we ask in Christ's name. Amen.